You're listening to Michael in Context. Today on the show, Michael's guests include Dr. George Grant, author of more than five dozen books, including Grand Illusions, The Legacy of Planned Parenthood, Killer Angel, a biography of Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger, and many more. Dr. Anthony Trebu, a Vanderbilt Medical School graduate, fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and Megan Weber, client manager at And Then There Were None, a nonprofit that exists to help abortion clinic workers leave the abortion industry. And now your host, Michael Easley. On September 14, 1879, in Corning, New York, Margaret Higgins was born the sixth child to a devoutly Catholic Irish-American family. Her mother, Ann Higgins, died from tuberculosis at the age of 50. Margaret, the sixth of 11 children, pointed to her mother's frequent pregnancy as the underlying cause of her premature death. Margaret Higgins sought to escape what she viewed as a grim class and family heritage. Margaret Higgins marries and becomes Margaret Sanger. Dr. George Grant, thanks for your time today on In Context. Give us a 50,000-foot view on a woman named Margaret Sanger. Who is she, uh, and what don't we know about her? Well, Margaret Sanger is probably the great hero of the pro-abortion movement and the women's rights movement. She's the founder of Planned Parenthood, which originally was called the Birth Control League, She was early on uh, a part of a New York City uh, gathering, a salon of intellectuals that included Will and Ariel Durant and Edna St. Vincent Millay and John Reed. They were all sort of uh, Marxist revolutionaries who desired to just see the whole world changed. But Margaret Sanders zeroed in on women's rights and women's health, believing that the whole revolution uh, for industrial workers, uh, for the structure of the economy, for the nature of the culture, all of that could be changed best with a sexual revolution. By about 1913, she had zeroed in on women's rights as the best way to usher in this global revolution that she imagined. About 1915, she was running into conflict with what were then called the Comstock Laws. Uh, They were laws against indecency and the use of the males for inciting over-sexualized material. She was a master of public relations. She used the press and was just brilliant in coming up with slogans that essentially argued that the sexual revolution that she was espousing was the heart and soul of genuine freedom and individual choice. Now, where was she on the subject of eugenics? How did she talk about that? Well, she didn't actually know about eugenics until she got to England during her short exile. And that's when she was introduced to the ideas of Francis Galton, a cousin of Charles Darwin, who had come up with the idea that through science, we could actually reshape the course of evolution through what today we would call genetic engineering. In those days, they simply called it eugenics. And the idea was you take the best of the best in the human race, have them reproduce more, 
And then the defectives, as they thought of them, or the less desirable races, you compel them to reproduce less. And so you sort out the human race and aggressively manipulate the survival of the fittest. They wanted to create a race of thoroughbreds. So from your study of Sanger, was she intentional in this, you know, let's only let those who are intelligent, successful, only they can reproduce? Was she intentional with that thinking? She was very intentional. She wrote about it constantly. She held the first eugenics conference in New York City in 1924, Uh, She was involved with Dr. Ernst Rudin, who became the director of the euthanasia policy for Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. She was deeply entrenched in the idea that what she called the human weeds had to simply be eliminated from the garden of human society. She targeted particularly what we would call Slavs, Jews, Africans and Asians, that they were less desirable races, and then the more Nordic and Western races were considered to be the desirable ones. That was the basis of the Birth Control League and the efforts of Planned Parenthood in its earliest days. In the political climate of the day, what voices were speaking in favor of her and what voices were speaking against what she was selling? Well, the church across all denominational lines was unanimous in denouncing the aims of Planned Parenthood. The people that tended to be very supportive were either the extreme academic elite at places like Harvard and Princeton and Yale. Uh, They actually had chairs of eugenic studies at those universities. There was support there, and there was also support in the Deep South among sort of the segregationist crowd. So the first eugenics laws in the United States that actually limited uh, birth rates or attempted to limit birth rates or to sterilize certain sections of the population. This is a huge scandal in American policy. Most of that was in the Deep South. Is it fair to say that the American church-going moral person in this time period, are they aware of these issues, George? They were not aware then, and to a large degree, they're still not aware. All right, two or three things that our audience needs to know about Planned Parenthood. First, Planned Parenthood is the world's largest and most profitable nonprofit organization, reeling in billions of dollars from government funding, not just from the United States, but from most of the Western powers and from the United Nations. This is a cash cow. And oftentimes, it's all about the money. Secondly, there have been innumerable medical studies linking breast cancer and a multitude of abortions. There have been innumerable studies that have demonstrated the viability of life within the womb from the earliest stages of pregnancy. What the pro-abortion movement is inclined to do is to ignore most of the very inconvenient facts that we now know to be true. But there is a bright ray of hope in, in our time. 
Uh, there will always be death and destruction. There will always be evil and wickedness in our world until Christ comes back. Uh, I believe that the real key to the battle doesn't take place on the front steps of the Capitol building or inside the corridors of power. The real victory will be won when the Church of Jesus Christ rises up, takes the gospel seriously, and applies it to the whole of life. That's Dr. George Grant, author of more than five dozen books, including Killer Angel, a biography of Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger. You know, the gospel is our only hope. The gospel that not only changed my life, but I hope that changed your life, that moved us from what we were to what we can be. Recently, I received a text from a friend. It simply read Psalm 143, verses 2 to 4, which are, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He's made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. Grim words from David. And my friend texts those verses saying, this must be how David felt after Bathsheba and Uriah. He knew Satan had crushed him and God was his only hope. How I, the old abortionist, felt at my revelation of who he is, that he's always loved me in spite of the grossness of my sin. I'm delighted and humbled to have Dr. Anthony, also known as Tony Tribu, on the broadcast. Now, in med school in the 70s, uh, what was the approach for teaching doctors about abortion? Well, you've got to understand is while I was in medical school, the Roe v. Wade judgment came down, which basically let abortion loose all over the United States. Up until then, Tennessee had been fairly strict with abortion, but Vanderbilt considered itself on the vanguard of a progressive thinking, just immediately began teaching abortion, probably around the time I was a third or fourth year medical student, and began pushing it as a way to prevent child abuse and a way to prevent marital problems. It was kind of the number one problem solver when it first came out. When I was in medical school, I had reservations about whether abortion was all it was cracked up to be. And so when I started my residency in OBGYN, I told them at first that I really didn't want to do them. But by the time I was a third-year resident, I was doing them and was doing them fairly frequently. Um, so you might just say that by the time I was 30, I was fairly convinced that abortion was necessary and that safe abortions were very important and that it was part of a, a woman's health care. And under the guise of a woman's health care or under the guise of protecting children from abuse, as you articulated, did anyone else talk about the rights of a child? None. And it was considered either a Catholic issue or it was considered a uninformed, intolerant, fundamentalist, ignorant person. You know, I did abortions for money at first, but I would just say somewhere around 84, I was drifting in life and I was 
looking for meaning, and, and I kind of come back around to be hesitant or against abortion. And I remember a lady somewhere around 84, 85, she had insurance, and abortion was an insurable uh, illness back in the early 80s, and wanted me to do it at a surgery center, and I said I would, and I came home, and I started thinking about it, and I hadn't done one in several months at that point, and I called her the next day and said, you know, I'm not going to do any more abortions. I'm sorry, you need to get another doctor. And she hung up and went away, and I went my way, and that was that. I have not done one since then. There are other health care providers listening to you, and there are women who've had abortions listening to you. And there was something in Tony Tribu's heart that broke, and you said, I can't do this anymore. This is wrong to abort children. Tell us a little about that. Yes, I've got a wonderful story. I was going to a church in Nashville, and one day the pastor said, it's on my heart that we need to pray about abortion today, and we need to have healing for abortion. And we want anybody that had to do with the abortion industry to come down and help us pray. And he said, there's some people there that are really wounded, and you need to come pray with them. And a woman came up to me, and she said, you may not remember, but you aborted my baby. And I said, no. And I told her that I was sorry that I'd aborted her baby. And she told me that she was sorry that she had paid me money to kill her baby. And it was one of the most intense experiences. And I think at that point, I began to feel more clean about my past. Because it goes both ways. You know, people pay you money to kill their children. And you take the money and kill the children. So, like anything we've done, Tony, whether it's, you know, we've had an affair, we've lied, we've stolen, we've performed an abortion, we paid to have an abortion, there is forgiveness, there is healing, but it's not just a simple, I say a sentence and it's all gone. How does a person, how do you as a physician process that? And how would you encourage those both who have provided and those who have paid for those services to work through that? Well, I think you have to come to Jesus. That's item one. You can't begin to work on it until you give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Item two, I think that because you've come to Jesus, you can authentically change. You know, you can say, yeah, I used to do abortions, but there's not enough money in the world that I'll do an abortion for now. And because of that, I can talk to a girl that's had an abortion to say, you know, you don't have to have another one. You've had one. Yeah, I've done them. You, you can't have near as many as I've already done. But the one thing you can do is change. But you've got to be changed by Jesus first. Our final guest on the program is Megan Weber. She serves as client manager for the nonprofit organization, and then there were none. And then there were none exists to help abortion clinic workers leave the abortion industry. It, you know, it's easy to vilify those who work in the abortion industry, Megan, but working along with Abby Johnson and then there were none, uh, you guys have a different approach how to engage abortion providers. Correct. Um, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head there with how people want to vilify And Abby always states that we want to blame someone because abortion is so terrible. So we want to point fingers and blame and find something somehow to convict and condemn the guilty party. 
so what we want to do is spread the light that Satan, he's the enemy. He's the guilty party. And we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. So that's where our focus needs to remain. And we need to see the abortion workers as flesh and blood created in God's image. And we're not to fight against them. How would you describe, a, if there is such a thing, as a typical abortion clinic worker? Well, what we see in our ministry, the average abortion-providing employee that comes to us is often a single mother, someone who's desperate for work. I always like to tell people that the same desperation that sends a woman to a clinic to obtain an abortion is the same desperation that sends the worker there for an income. Wherever the abortion industry is, there are desperate women involved, and that goes for their employees as well. Some of them not even being aware that they're being hired at an abortion clinic. Oftentimes, their advertising is for a medical assistant for a women's clinic. And in fact, one of my clients, she went to this interview because she thought she was going to work in a pregnancy resource center that helped women have their babies because of the way the advertising worked in this ad. And she later found out that she would be assisting with partial birth abortions instead. When you look at the, uh, the client base, those who work in the clinics, is there any altruism there? Do they think they're helping? Absolutely. And, you know, that's the scary part about kind of this cult mentality that the abortion industry is wrapped up in, because the cult mentality often has 99% truth with 1% falsehood, and that 1% falsehood is bad enough to cast the whole thing aside. So, yes, they are going in there to help women, and in fact, some of them are. Some of our clients have assisted women who hadn't seen a physician in years, and they go in for an exam and find out that they have the early stages of cervical cancer, and they're able to go on and get treatment and help. That is certainly a good thing to identify. That is helping a woman. But the reason why the abortion industry provides the other services that could be considered helpful is to get women in the door and familiarize them with abortion. So they're meeting a client before the quote-unquote need for abortion exists. Aren't clinics, aren't hospitals, aren't emergency rooms, do not they still provide those services for anyone who has need? Correct, yes. And there are tens of thousands of federally qualified health centers across the country There's thousands of Medicaid-providing physicians. In fact, when I was a single mom, I had two unintended pregnancies. I was on my state health care, and I went through every service I needed through the course of my pregnancy without ever stepping into a Planned Parenthood clinic. Move us into that abortion clinic worker and uh, and then there were none approaches talking to abortion providers. One of the ways we reach out is through mail. We have a list of clinics and we send our mailers to them bright and colorful postcards with positive messages of love and assistance and just telling them, we know that you didn't grow up wanting to work here and we can get you out. Just as simple as that. And when they're aware of the resources we provide our transitional financial assistance, we help with job search skills, including professional resume assistance. We offer legal assistance to those who may have trouble with their former employers causing problems for them, or if they want to come forward and disclose illegal activity, we can protect their best interests. And then the sweet spot of our ministry is they're paired 
one-on-one with a client manager to walk with them through their transition, and we have our healing retreats. When they're really aware of what we can offer them and that we just really care about who they are as a person, as an individual, then they're quick to say, all right, I'm done. I quit. I'm out. Now that I know this help is here, I'm done. We never want to uh, create an environment of fear for anybody who works in a clinic. We do believe that no matter what your job is, you should personally feel safe from harm while you're there, even if your job is not an ideal thing to be doing. So there are men and women who who believe in pro-life. They're not perhaps engaged. They don't know what to do. A lot of Christian people are saying, you know, it's a choice, it's legal, it's safe. Well, we are the problem. The church is the problem because it's close to 70% of women who are obtaining abortions at the time of their abortion claim that they attend church on a regular basis. And we know from our ministry and the clients that have come to us that most of our clients, most of our abortion industry workers are attending church while they work in a clinic. So really, it's the Christian population that is staffing the clinics and obtaining the abortions. Right there, we could get rid of this problem just like that if our churches would step into action and stop being complacent. Now, you've seen over 325 workers uh, leave the industry. Correct. And that number includes seven full-time abortion-providing physicians who were the ones actually performing the abortions, and they've now walked away for good. What goes through an abortion provider's mindset when he or she, a physician, says, I'm not going to do this anymore? What else goes on in their heart and head when they come out of that? Well, there's usually a lot of fear. When it comes to walking away from the abortion industry and seeking the services of a pro-life group, They've been taught and trained and sat through seminars about how we're the enemy. And so it takes so much courage to even contact us. But many times they won't want to share their names. They'll just ask a lot of questions and then they'll just see that we're here for them. One of my clients, I worked with her for over a year on the phone. We, we talked on the phone every so often while she still worked at the clinic because she just needed to know she could trust us, you know, so... There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. Sometimes there's panic attacks involved. And as soon as they take a step out of that clinic and they know that they're not eligible for rehire, they can't go back, many times depression can sink in. And that's why it's so vital that we pair them with one of our client managers one-on-ones. We check in with them as often as they need us to, things like that. Do you have the realization, especially, let's say, for a physician where he or she comes to the cold reality and they say, you know, I've been taking lives. Yeah, well, and we've even experienced this online when Abby has shared, we have a physician who is seeking to leave the industry. It's not as easy as people would think. It's not like quitting your job at McDonald's. For a physician who's providing abortions, oftentimes they're wrapped up in a practice and they've bought into that practice with several other physicians. And they can't just leave. They have to buy themselves out of it. One of the physicians we assisted had to pay on the upwards of $50,000 to sever their contract. Sometimes people will say very hateful things like, why don't they use their blood money to pay it off? Well, they don't understand how it all works. And these physicians don't just have bags of cash laying around their house. There's a lot of physical and monetary connection 
to this group that they have to get out of. They have to change licensing and they have to legally sever their interaction with all these other physicians that are connected. And sometimes maybe they own part of a building and they don't want their name attached to that ownership anymore. So it's so gritty and complicated at times, and it can be a long, drawn-out process. It's not something that can just happen overnight for somebody as involved as a physician. We really just have to group together and put our money where our mouths are and say, if we want to end abortion and if we want to see conversion, then we've got to help facilitate that. And we've got to love them right where they are, love them through their fears and anxieties, and understand that they're not always going to change overnight. Sometimes they're going to carry those misconceptions with them for a time and a season until they're further away from the industry and have those falsehoods fall away. Groups historically have used all kinds of approaches to fight the industry. Language, of course, can be condemning murder mills, this type of thing. We can think about images where we've seen graphic images on YouTube or presentations on the abortion process. What's your take on that approach? Well, from the perspective of our clients and those who've worked in the industry is, you know, when it comes to graphic imagery, you have no idea what they see all day, every day. The signs that are held outside of the clinics don't even touch the reality of what they're seeing and hearing and smelling inside of the clinics. And those things cannot be unseen. And so they look at some graphic spine with, you know, an aborted baby and they're like, "Mm -hmm, yep, that's what I see every day. It doesn't faze them. But what we do notice is that many times abortion industry workers have their hearts softened by seeing the humanity of the unborn not the death and the dismemberment of the unborn, but the humanity. So maybe having a sign with an intact baby who's alive in utero, a picture of a pregnant woman, seeing an ultrasound image is so different than seeing a dismembered baby. And that's what would catch their eye and make them think for a moment. But then also the inflammatory language just really has to go. It's it's not helping anyone. You apply the same principle to any other thing we're going through in life. If you are an alcoholic and somebody's trying to reach out to you, you know, do you say, hey, you drunkard, you don't do that. That's not how you win the ear of somebody you're trying to influence. And so by shifting our language to loving words and by calling an abortion doctor a physician, an abortion physician, an abortion providing doctor rather than abortionist, I mean, even those little changes, you know, if you respect somebody, you don't respect what they do, but if you respect them as a person and you interact with them accordingly, they're going to give you that much more time to plead your case. And time and time again, our clients We always ask, what was your experience on the sidewalk outside of your clinic? Time and again, the person that was the tip of the iceberg moment for them, it was, they just were so nice to me. Mm. They asked me how I was doing. They noticed I hadn't been there and said, oh, have you not been feeling well? Can we pray for you? Or if they see a car seat in the back of their car, oh, how old's your baby? Oh, we're happy for you. You know, things like that. They just connected on that human level and just showed love. I was talking with somebody a while back and they said, when you run out of gas and you're stranded on the side of the road and somebody pulls up with a gas can, you don't stop them and say, before you fill up my tank so I can keep driving, are you pro-choice? No, 
out in the normal everyday life, aside from the abortion debate, people interact with each other all the time. If somebody works in the grocery store and somebody's coming through the aisle, oh, it looks like you're making tacos for dinner. You know, you don't say, before I have friendly conversation with you, do you work in an abortion clinic? If we take that same kind of mindset to the sidewalks and how we interact with the workers, we'll just have normal everyday conversation with them and they'll see that we're not these radical, crazy people. We just love them and we know that the work they're doing is harming them. And we want them to be set free from that. We've got to lay down our hostility. There's enough anger inside of the clinics. We need to show up with love. Well, for these two broadcasts, we have tried to expand all of our knowledge base on what the abortion industry is like. It's easy to say I'm pro-life. It's easy to say I'm anti-abortion. And it's become easy for a lot of Christians to say it's okay to be pro-choice. I hope you've learned that this is a much broader topic than an individual's right to go into a clinic and make, quote, a choice to keep a child or not. Unfortunately, and this really begins in the church in some ways, we've adopted a language of such kind tolerance that we sacrifice truth. It's not tolerant to say it's okay to kill a child. It's not tolerant or loving to say it's okay to persist down the wrong path. Rather, it's loving to speak the truth. We can do it in a kind way. We can do it in a clear way. And as you've heard from these stories, there are men and women who are trying their best to tell their story of why they believe at the moment of conception, when sperm and egg come together, that that embryo is a full human life. All the DNA, everything necessary for your height, your hair color, your eye color, whether you'll be an ectomorph, a mesomorph, whatever your design is going to be, it's all there at the moment of conception. All that is required is time and nourishment for that baby to develop. And whether he or she is in the uterus or out of the uterus, that person is made in the image of God. We think about the staggering numbers of lives that are lost every year just in our country. What will you do? What will I do? Number one, not to sound cliche, but we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray that people will come to their senses and realize pregnancy isn't an inconvenience. Pregnancy is the beginning of life. Secondly, we need to not be hateful toward those who are in the abortion industry who scream and yell at us for being pro-life. We want to be able to say, I understand the anger and the frustration. I understand that injustice has happened, but let's talk about you. Third, I think the church can go a long way by acknowledging during Sanctity of Life Month There are women in that room that have had an abortion, and not to be angry at them or shame them, they may feel bad already. We don't need to make them feel worse. And in a loving, compassionate way, provide counseling services, other women who've gone through abortions to walk with them and encourage them that there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is hope, even post-abortion. Fourth, I think we need to be brave about talking about pro-life. We don't have to be angry and yell and hold placards with fetal parts on them. But we do need to say, you know, I've got four children. I've got two children. Or I'm glad my mother didn't abort me. And Cindy and I have three adopted kids. Three of our four came from some other mother. And we're glad that those moms chose life. We're glad they are our children. And if you were to ask them, (laughs) they would tell you straight up, they're glad they're alive. 
So we have an opportunity to speak love, to speak truthfully, to speak kindly in whatever your field is. My hope is that you'll be challenged to not pick up a placard and go march, but that you'll pray, that you'll be willing to engage conversation, you'll have compassion for people who have had abortions, fathers as well who've gone through that, and that you and I will be the light of Christ in a dark world that's being deceived by a great treachery that quietly happens over 3,000 times a day. This is Michael Easley in Context.